Thank you, Paul, <coughs> for reading. Uh, folks, this is our last talk in this series we've been looking at um, over the last few weeks through the letter of 1 Thessalonians. We've been examining especially uh, Paul's commitment to transforming community. And uh, so this sort of uh, last passage that we've just read together is, is, is really Paul summing up and signing off. He's providing some of the final pieces of information he wants to get across to this young church. Um, and so has that kind of feel of reading almost like bullet points. You know, you go through, there's a lot of uh, pithy one-liners. So we're going to try and think about that and, uh, you know, make, make some general uh, conclusions about everything we've been learning and really push that home and try and live that out together. Don't forget, this church is, is, is pretty brand new and they've been Christians for a matter of weeks or months. And yet, um, there doesn't seem, as you read through, there doesn't seem to be any major faults, any major doctrinal issues in their teaching, <coughs> any, <coughs> pardon me, any major moral issues in the way they're living their lives. Um, they're immature as Christians, for sure, but there's no massive issue, um, like we see in other letters that Paul has to address. And so, when we see these sort of general comments that Paul makes, we actually get a really clear insight, a really clear vision about what the Apostle Paul, the greatest church planter, of the history of the world, um, what he considers to be essential uh, when it comes to the life and, and the health of a local church, a new church. And so that can really minister and speak to us um, as a new church, um, uh, full, of, full of excited people, uh, passionate for Jesus. What are the things that we need to really zone in on? Uh, really get down at sort of what we call a medicine brainstem level, you know, to the level where you're not really thinking about it, it just happens automatically. That's what goes on in your, in your brainstem, by the way. Anyway, in order for us to see and experience and multiply transforming community, we need three type of relationships to really be so strong within our church. Okay, so first of all, we need a transforming relationship with our leaders. Number two, we need a transforming relationship with one another. And number three, we need a transforming relationship with God, okay? That might seem pretty obvious. Transforming relationship with leaders, with one another, and with God. And so we'll look and see where that comes from in this text over the next little while. So first of all, our transforming relationship with leaders. This is so important, and Paul sort of uh, touches on this in verse 12 and 13 of our passage. You can have a look at that just now. It is so important because... When it is done well, when there is a good relationship between people and their leaders, the church will flourish, it will thrive, it will be transforming. But when it's done badly, when there is a bad relationship, it is just disastrous. And I must admit from personal experience, I know the truth of what I've just said. Good leaders leading well leads to transformation. Bad leaders or bad relationship with leaders leads to deterioration and a breakup of community. So how are the people, how are we to respond to our leaders within the church? Well, look down at verse 12. It says, <clears throat> we ask you brothers and sisters, you know, the, the spiritual family of the church, respect those who labor among you. And verse 13, esteem them. Live at peace, he says in verse 14, with one another. This is how you are to respond to your leaders. Not that there was necessarily a live issue in the church at that time, but Paul anticipates this is always going to be a tension within the church. 
a potential problem, that there could be some sort of imbalance. And so that's why he's addressing it like he is now. He says, you're to respect and esteem your leaders. You are to look for a harmonious relationship with them. You are to respond to them by giving them honor. Uh, you are to willingly give yourselves to them so they may lead you and you may follow well. They, he says, <clears throat> labor among you. They work in your presence. This word that Paul uses for labor is used elsewhere in the New Testament uh, to refer to manual labor, toiling, sweating, <clears throat> working hard. My father-in-law is a farmer and I think that in comparison to him, my job is pretty straightforward. Uh, he works seven days a week, uh, pretty much close to 18 hours a day on the farm. Um, when I got married to Marion, uh, I think there was one day where the cows didn't get milked twice, uh, but for pretty much every other day of the year, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, all these special days, birth of new babies, the cows have got to get milked. It is a hard job. And so Paul uses this word labor to refer to the work that leaders should be doing among the people within the church. It is that commitment, that hardcore labor. <clears throat> and he says, they are admonishing you in the Lord. That is their job, to admonish you. Admonishing is kind of an old Christian word, but it, it sort of refers to instruction. There's a positive aspect or, or, or warning. There's a negative aspect as well. You know, stay away from, from sin and trouble. They're laboring hard among you with blood and sweat and tears. <clears throat> They're giving you spiritual direction. And so according to Paul, the extent that we give ourselves to following those kind of leaders is the extent to which transforming community will flourish. It is that important. The Bible, uh, particularly the New Testament, gives us a, a wider, a broader vision still of, of spiritual leadership within the transforming community, especially in respect to elders and pastors. By the way, they are the same thing in the Bible. An elder is a pastor, a pastor is an elder. Uh, sometimes we in our minds separate them out, but really they are the same thing. A broader vision, various Bible passages you can go to, uh, some familiar to you, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, that kind of thing, show that your elders, your leaders should be hospitable people, men. They should be holy. They should be living disciplined lives. They should be a model to us of godliness. They should teach sound doctrine. They should live sound lives. They should speak God's word to us. They should show us how to live. They should instruct us to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ. They should be able to apply tenderly the gospel to our lives. This is what leaders are to be like within the church, within the transforming community. They are to connect the dots between the gospel and real life, your lives, my lives. And so, if you know someone like that, you should follow them willingly, according to Paul. Give them respect. Give them esteem. There's a, there's a classic verse that leaders love to quote in Hebrews 13, verse 17. It says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. We love that bit. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account to God. But let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What Paul is saying here and what the writer of Hebrews is saying is give yourselves to such leaders, godly, humble 
people. Why should we do this? What is our motivation? Well, he says down there in verse 12, these leaders are they're over you in the Lord. These are people that Jesus himself has chosen, called to a particular office and given gifts to lead God's people. That's why we should give ourselves to such leaders. Leaders are not those who lord it over one another by force of personality or by acting the celebrity pastor. They're not to, you know, exert influence because of their connections or their learnedness or their financial prowess. Instead, according to the scriptures, leaders, especially elders and pastors, are to be humble, servant-hearted, authentic men and women of God. Of course, this applies not just to pastors and elders, but to all in spiritual leadership. If we are led by such people, transforming community will grow and will flourish and will actually happen. We will actually see and receive transformation. And that's what, of course, we want here, isn't it, at Foundation Church? We want that kind of thing to be our experience. I want it to be my experience as a leader here. My role, of course, as the pastor, as a shepherd, is to, to nurture you, <coughs> is to equip you, is to create opportunities for you to serve and to uh, use your gifts in the building up of the church to the glory of God. That's what this is all about, folks. That's why Paul says in verse 25, and I can relate to this very much, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Pray for us. Future leaders, pray for them. Pastor of Foundation Church, pray for him. Because gospel work is hard. It is hard graft. And there are occupational hazards at every corner. Brothers, pray for us. So the first relationship that we have to get at brainstem level is a transforming relationship with our leaders but the second one then paul sort of uh, goes on to in verses uh, where, where are we at sort of 14 and 15 and a few other places as well transforming relationship with one another and and we've hit on this quite a few times during this study for a good reason it's in the bible and it's important and it comes up time and again Transforming relationship with one another. It is transforming because we are family. That's why Paul uses words brothers, brotherly love. It's not just for men, but he's communicating that this is the deepest form of bond that you can possibly have is with fellow members of the local church. If you're sitting there and thinking to, my, to yourself, that's, that's just rubbish. I'm, I'm closer to this person or that person or the other person or I find more closeness with guys that I work with or, or, or people that I have this shared interest with outside of your own marriage if you're married your closest relationship is and your deepest relationship is to be with your fellow members of the same church we are family I think there's a song that just seems to keep coming up in my mind maybe we'll sing that after will we? Um, transforming community happens because of this deep bond among us, because of the spiritual connection, the reality of what the Holy Spirit has done in applying the gospel to us. That's why, that's how we are brothers and sisters. Because the Spirit is among us and unites us together in a way that we don't see elsewhere. 
at the beginning of the series, <clears throat> don't, don't forget, uh, we saw that the church is a church because the people in it have been chosen by God. They have cho been chosen by him to receive his love. He has chosen them to love them. They were not chosen, don't forget, because they were already living good religious lives and he just sort of added to that and then suddenly they were good with God. Don't forget, the group of people that were addressed in this letter <clears throat> were pagans. They were worshipping idols. They were about as unchristian as you can get. They were about as uninterested as you could possibly get. And yet, when God chose them and set his love upon them, <clears throat> when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ as preached by Paul and Timothy and Silas, their lives were turned around on a sixpence. They heard the gospel. They heard that Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, that took their sins with him to the grave, and there they stayed. But yet Jesus was raised on the third day to give them new life, to turn them away from their idolatry, and to put them on a destiny towards him in the new heavens and the new earth with great hope. That's the gospel. And when they trusted in him, the effects of his work was applied to them. Their sins were forgiven, their new, new life was given to them. That's the gospel. But as we saw in our first passage, the gospel didn't just come to them in word. <coughs> it came to them in power. It came in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. They didn't just know the truth up here and believe it up here, but it caught fire in their hearts. It went deep down into their souls and it changed them, it transformed them from the inside out. This group of ex-pagans in Thessalonica were united together by this one thing. The gospel of Jesus applied to them by the Holy Spirit. And so as such, the Spirit formed among them a new family. Bonds closer than their own blood relatives. A new society, a new world with, with new life being experienced, new values being lived out. That's why Paul can say... <clears throat> In verse 14, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. In other words, have a transforming relationship with one another. See, if you, if you or I just walked up to someone in the street, <coughs> pick someone right now, and, and walk up to them and, and, and admonish them in the Lord and, and help them to see their sin and point that out to them, I can see you're sinning in this area here and I'm going to show that to you. <coughs> the response that you or I are likely to get is probably abuse, mockery, you might get punched in the face, maybe someone will call the police or the psychiatrist or something like that. But the point is, if you were to try and admonish someone out on the street, <coughs> it wouldn't go well because they're not expecting it. You don't have that relationship with the, the random individual on the street. They haven't permitted you to have that kind of conversation with them. But that is not the kind of relationship we see in the church, in the place of transforming community. We have among us a family bond, a, a common faith, which means that we can admonish one another. We can encourage one another. We should help one another. That is expected in the church, according to Paul. It's needed. I need it. I need to be living my life in a community like that. <coughs> I need help to live out Christian values. We all, we all need that. 
Maybe a few more um, pointers here. <coughs> Are they noisy out there, by the way? Is that distracting? No? no. My bad. Um, what are the kind of people that we are talking about here in this, um, in this passage? <clears throat> we've got the idle. We've got those who are faint-hearted, and we've got those who are weak. Thanks, Paul. The idle are those, we've seen this already a few weeks ago, who are lazy individuals, they're job-shy. It's not that they can't work for whatever reason, it's that they won't work. They will spend their time prevailing on the generosity of other rich Christians. <coughs> and so to those people, Paul encourages the fellow local church members to warn them, to admonish them, to tell them to turn their lives around, to, to work for yourself, to work with your hands. That's what they're to do, and that's to happen in the transforming community. So you can do that kind of thing with family. What about the faint-hearted? What does that mean? Discouraged. Disheartened. Probably in reference to what Paul was just writing about earlier in this letter. Those who are discouraged with regard to their salvation. Am I really saved? Are my relatives really going to rise again with the Lord? Has he forgotten them? The faint-hearted are to be encouraged. They are to have soothing words spoken over them by others within the transforming community. What about the weak? Weak is a pretty easy word to understand, I guess. But again, in context with what we've been looking at over the last few weeks, the weak are probably those who are struggling to live a holy life. Don't forget they've come from living as pagans with all the lifestyle that came with it. And so the weak need help to live a holy life to the glory of God. They need to be surrounded by people who are walking side by side, trying to honour God with their lives, their relational purity, their work ethic, that kind of thing. The point with all this, the idle, the discouraged, the weak, they are surrounded, we are surrounded by family. Brothers and sisters, that is what we are. And they are used by God for your transformation, for their transformation. I love this next bit, but Paul says, be patient with them all. That is, that is a word for me right there. As soon as I read that in my study this week, it was just like, oh, there's a dagger right in my heart. Be patient with them all. People are hard work. Lives are messy. And if you're anything like me, you just want everything fixed, one conversation and it's done. But that's just naive and stupid. My life isn't as easy as that. Your life isn't as easy as that. And be patient with them all. It's a word for me. Maybe it's a word for you too. It takes trust, all this stuff. To actually live transforming relationships with one another takes trust. It takes commitment. <clears throat> but let me just say this. <coughs> transformation in the local church as we have been seeing throughout the series is not just a possibility transformation in the local church is expected for every single one of us transformation is to be normal for everyone who enters into the church where else in the world do we see this kind 
of transforming community. Where else in the world do we have and see in other human institutions the expectation that lives are changed so thoroughly, so consistently, so permanently than in the local church? I'm not talking manipulation or brainwashing that we see out there in the world of media and advertising and, 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 and heavy-handed government, but transformation that comes from a heart set on fire. Where else do we see that? I wonder if you're here today or you're listening in and you are feeling faint-hearted, just like he's saying here. You're discouraged. But here, you see, in this place, there is to be encouragement. Maybe you feel weak and struggling to live out the godly life that you know you've been called to in Jesus. But again here, help is at your side, maybe quite literally. Maybe you just get the sneaking suspicion that there are blind spots in your life where sin has blinded you. Maybe you want that identified and removed so that you can grow more in joy, grow more into Jesus Christ. Well, here you have friends who will admonish you. God wants us to live holy lives. And he himself, it says in verse 23, will do this. He will guarantee it. And yet he uses this, us, in that process. Isn't that just astounding when you think about it? Transforming relationship with our leaders, transforming relationship with one another, and finally, transforming relationship with God. And specifically, in the context of what we're doing tonight, which is gathered worship. Transforming gathered worship, relationship with God. <coughs> we can think of what we do here on Sunday nights every, every week as the family gathering, the reunion. That's why he says in verse 26, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's why I gave you a hug earlier on, Mark. He wasn't quite ready for it. But the point is, this is a family gathering. It is good that we are together. It is joyful when we are with one another. And so Paul is encouraging the church to express that, to express your affection and your unity with one another. We may not choose to apply it literally and actually give each other a holy kiss. What even is a holy kiss? But as we get together, let's just warmly welcome and embrace one another in ways that are sensitive and uh, helpful. But whichever way we do it, we are a family, we gather together, we are a group of people in need of transformation, and so we come together in the name of Jesus every week. We are hungry for more of God, and so we obey him when we gather together. Verses 16 to 18 gives us a bit of a picture, a few bullet points about what we are to do when we gather for worship in the worship service. Rejoice, he says, pray, give thanks, <coughs> we're to do these things always, continually, in all circumstances. According to Paul, when we get together as a family, this is to be our practice. This is to be our rhythm. These are the habits of transforming community. Worship, as I said a few moments ago, is hearing from God and it is responding to him. And so we do these things every time we gather, every week. 
But this is so good, what I'm about to say to you. I'm thankful for one of the commentators that I read for pointing this out. When we read, rejoice, always, pray without ceasing, we think of it in terms of a law. You must rejoice continually. You must pray without ceasing. But, as this commentator pointed out, it is not a command to just have joy when we get together or just be happy as we get together as if we can turn it on like a tap. It is not a command, he says, but it is an invitation. You don't need to feel joy before coming to church or engaging in worship. You can come to church to gather with your brothers and sisters when you are on top of the mountain, when you are soaring above the clouds, when you are so close to God, when you are filled with his spirit. Or you can come when you are just about as low as you can get, when you are groveling along in the dust, when you are empty and tired, when you are broken and so aware of your own sin, you can come to church. Or anywhere in between those two extremes. The point I'm getting at is this. As a community, when we gather We all rejoice in the Lord. We can give thanks in all circumstances. As a family united by the gospel, we can see God at work in all things. We can praise Christ for what he's done. We can experience the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit among us, whether you're up here or down here or somewhere in between. You know, if you're anything like me, so often we come together, gathered, but so full of our own problems. The weights of life, the negative experiences that we drag around with us, that we come to worship focused on ourselves, we come to worship self-absorbed. But this changes when we worship together, when we add our voices, when we pray these prayers. You see, we may not feel these external truths when we're declaring and adoring God through song, when we're confessing, we may not feel those truths. But as we gather together, as we talk, as we sing, as we enter into worship in the transforming community, these truths began, begin to sink in. They begin to come alive for each of us. As we listen to one another sing, as we gather together, as we embrace each other warmly and say, brother, sister, it's good to see you. As we worship together, what is external and objective becomes internal and subjective. We start to feel the gospel at work within us. When we engage with gathered worship, we'll be lifted up, we'll be built up. When we hear the gospel declared, the forgiveness of sins, we will be reassured in our faith. We will be refreshed in times of singing. At the supper, the Lord's Supper, we will be fed with the spiritual food of Jesus Christ. As we hear God's word read and explained through the Bible, we will be built up as we respond in praise and prayer. All of these things take place every time the family get together and worship as a transforming community. It is a a beautiful vision. And it's not just a stirring vision because it sounds great. It's beautiful because it happens. It's happening.
There's an interesting section, as you can see there in verses 19 to 22. In the context of gathered worship, what happens when the family get together? Prophecy. He says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Prophecy, whatever it is, is seen by Paul here, the apostle, as part of what you do when you get together, part of worship. Prophecy, in the New Testament sense of the word, is a word or a message given to the church that addresses a specific need, a specific issue or situation that's going on. And it comes with fresh relevance and with a cutting edge. That's what I take prophecy to mean in the local church context. And Paul seems to expect here that this happens as part of a healthy, transforming community. He says in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1, earnestly desire all the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. In the early church in the New Testament, we see individuals gifted and designated as prophets. Paul and Barnabas themselves were designated as prophets. Philip's four daughters were also known as prophetesses. Agabus was a famous prophet from the early church in Jerusalem. How do we know when we're hearing prophecy? What is a prophecy? Well, John Stotts, the famous Anglican um, minister and author says this, an authentic prophetic message will, listen, strengthen, encourage and comfort the hearers. It will edify, that is, it will build up the church, he says, it will bring a conviction of sin, it will bring an awareness of God and it will be conducive to peace and order and above all, to love. That's what a prophetic message will do in the local church gathering, according to Stott. It's another way to build up transforming community. That's why Paul says, do not quench the spirit in verse 19. Do not despise prophecies. It seems that there were some among the church, in the early church, who would seek to push prophecy to the margins, to just stamp down on it completely. This would have been an ideal time for Paul to say, you know what, stop enough with that prophecy, we don't need it anymore. But that's not what he says in these verses. He says, when you prophesy, don't despise what you're hearing. Instead, he says, test everything. Hold fast when you've tested it to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Reject it when it is against God's word. Test it, examine it against scripture. Look at the person giving the prophecy. But he says, if it is good, if it stacks up to God's word and scripture, then receive it as a message from God for the church. Reject anything, therefore, that denies what the scripture <coughs> clearly teaches. But do you notice also, that when it comes to Paul's own writing in this letter, he doesn't apply the same rule. We're not told anywhere here or anywhere else to test his writing. In fact, as you can see in verse 27, Paul puts the readers under a solemn oath. 
He wants to ensure that it gets read in the family gathering, that it gets probably copied, that it gets sent out and possibly exchanged with other letters for the churches. You see, folks, there is a, a big difference between the apostles' writing, as we have it now in the New Testament, and the prophecy that happens during a worship service. The apostolic teaching and writing is binding. It comes first. It comes with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And so Paul wants all the churches to read and reflect and receive his word as binding. But the same cannot be said for prophecy as it happens during the worship service. It has to be tested, has to be considered, it has to be weighed up. Some of it might be wrong, therefore reject it. But when it's right, receive it. It's important to get this balance right. We're not to reject prophecy completely, but we are not to forget the primacy of the apostolic word in the New Testament. That comes first. That is the thing by which we measure all other words. Worship. This transforming relationship with God happens when we come together. It is led by the Word and the Spirit. It glorifies Christ. It builds us up. And this is the place where transformation happens. That's why the Bible and Paul gives it such clear emphasis. <coughs> so let me ask you just before we wrap up, do you have your priorities straight when it comes to our gathered worship? Are you committed to transformation through worship as Paul teaches? Are you prioritizing the attendance and the engagement of worship as we gather every Sunday? Transforming relationship with our leaders, transforming relationship with one another, transforming relationship with God. One of those three is nice to have in the church. Two of them is even better, but when we have all three, when we have it at brainstem level, when it clicks, transformation will be our ordinary experience. When leaders are teaching God's word, when the family is gathering, is committed to loving, encouraging, admonishing one another, and when they gather together to worship that is spirit-led, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying, then it becomes electric. These pieces of wood that we arrange together suddenly go up in flames. And the best thing is, with all of this, it is not a one-off experience. It is a life. It is a life together as a routine. Do you want that? I know I do. I think we have it already. The seeds are beginning to grow. So let's, as we finish this series, go after God with greater intensity, deeper longing, crying out to him. Transform us by the power of your spirit. The guys are going to come up just now and we're going <clears> to <throat> come to a time of worship. <clears throat> and... Um, as we finish off this, this, this message and really draw a line out of the series as well, <coughs> we're going to try and respond in one of these three ways. Um, so maybe, actually, maybe if you want to stand with me as well, we'll come to, come to worship just now. But let's stand together.
And we've got three options here I want you to think through. And uh, maybe, maybe just uh, now's a good time to close your eyes and, and think through, just, just think about the words I'm about to say. You might want to respond in one of these three ways here. Your first response, the first group, might be that you just need to step into a transforming relationship with Jesus. Maybe you know about Jesus or you've heard about him. But if you're honest with yourself, you know that he is not number one in your life. You realize that you need him. You realize that you need him to begin the work of transformation by way of the cross, through the complete forgiveness of your sins, as he shares his new life with you. Maybe that's where you need to start. We're going to pray to that end in a few moments. Second response. Maybe you need to engage deeper. Maybe you need to push in further so that you might experience transformation more and more, deeper and deeper in your own lives and families. What's the next step for you? Maybe it's time for you to formally commit to membership here at Foundation. For you to stand up and say, I'm in. These are my brothers and sisters. This is my family. In a few moments together, we're going to read and renew our membership covenant as a church. We're going to just read it out as we come to the Lord's Supper. Maybe that's the next step you need to take. Thirdly and finally, maybe you've done all the above. You've entered into a transforming relationship with Jesus. You've come to commit formally to membership here to one another and maybe you want more you desire a a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit you need that renewal of power to help you push in further to the transforming community to live holy lives together and so your prayer your hope your response is to look to Christ for new levels of transformation in your life Jesus says ask and you will receive And so we're going to pray together just now as we conclude. (coughs) Father God, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. We thank you that he died on the cross for our sins, that he buried them in the grave, and he rose on the third day so that we may have newness of life as forgiven sons and daughters. We receive your forgiveness, O Lord. We receive your life, Jesus. Forgive us our sins. Remake us. Give us courage, Father God, to engage deeper with transforming community. We commit to living our lives out with one another here at Foundation Church. Father, we look to you for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. We look to you for renewal. Father, we look to you for transformation. Ask, you say, and we shall receive. And so we are asking tonight, transform us. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And as we come to take the bread and the wine together, may you feed us as we 
feed on him spiritually. Feed on him by faith. We thank you for the broken bread that points to his broken body. We thank you for the wine that points to his blood spilled for us. Lord, refresh us and renew us as we take the bread and wine together. Amen.